Well, welcome everybody. Good afternoon and welcome, or I should definitely say welcome back. Um, Dame Felicity, it's great to have you here. We're thrilled to be able to go on a journey with you through your life so far as a performer and lover of French song. I'm just going to give you all a brief idea of what to expect before we begin, because we've never really done anything quite exactly like this at Wigmore Hall before. So the idea is to interweave two stories. One, the story of the melody here at Wigmore Hall, starting at the very earliest years and moving through some of the most significant points in our history, um, and at the same time, a performer's personal history with French song, discovering it and falling in love with it, and the experience of listening to it, performing it, and what makes it so special. We will hear a few bits of music along the way. Um, for time reasons, mostly they're going to be short bits, but one or two will play all the way through, hopefully, if everything works all right. And who better to take us on this voyage than Dame Felicity Lott, who uh, has a decades-long international reputation as a sensitive and intelligent communicative performer of French song. Well, you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thank you. So, uh, to begin, how did you first come into contact with French as a language? Was it love at first sight? Was it an early thing? It was a very early thing, yes. Uh, my mother loved the language and had spent a few days, I think, in Rouen as a young girl. And um, she encouraged me to speak French over one meal a week, maybe, oh. I think, over lunch. We would talk French. And I had a cousin who lived in France. I still have a cousin who lives in France. And she arranged for me to go and stay there when I was about 11, I think. And then um, I was born in Cheltenham, and the twin town is Annecy, which is one of the most beautiful places in France. And I went and spent school holidays with a pen friend there, who I still have, still keep in touch with, which is wonderful. And she remembers that I, I went, she took me to her school, and I sang La Mer <laughs> of Charles Trenet to the class, um, which was probably a shock for all of us. <laughs> but uh, no, so my first, I mean, my parents were keen amateur musicians, but not, they, Dad and I tried to play Bach double violin concerto, but not terribly well. But, um, you know, it was more musicals and lighter music. Mm. And when I first began to love the language, we had wonderful teachers also at my school. I went to a grammar school in Cheltenham, and we had a marvellous French teacher with a very good accent. And so speaking French was, you know, a joy, I suppose. And I, I just... I'm trying to learn one of the fables of La Fontaine for a concert later at the end of this month. And I, I found, I remember learning it when I was a child. I learned it when I was at school and I got a prize in 1962 <laughs> <laughs> for Le Corbeau et le Renard. And I still can't remember the wretched words of this. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know, I just, I felt different with the French language. It made me feel feel like a different person. Um, I've spoken to other English people who've, who've made a kind of a career in, in France and they, they say it's like putting on different skin. I suppose because you have to make such an effort with your mouth and we're, we, you know, speaking English, you don't move anything much, but mm -hmm. you have to really make an effort with all these words, you know, the oohs and the, all these vowels, it's so different. And going, we you know, we live near the 
near the English Channel, and you go over on the ferry. It takes four hours from where we live, but it's a completely different world over there. Yeah. And it's just had so much charm for me. Yeah. So much longer ago, our beginnings, when we opened here in 1901 as Bechstein Hall, as we were then, um, the earliest, the very earliest years don't contain a huge amount of French song, uh, although there are one or two familiar names. The very first melody to be sung here was La Litière et le Pot au Lait by Godard, um, but really the first couple of years belonged overwhelmingly to Massenet, whose huge catalogue meant that people had lots of different songs to choose from, um, and to the contemporary French composer, Cécile Chaminard, who is behind me on the wall. This is a lovely picture that she gave to us when she came here slightly later on in 1905. She dedicated it to uh, Alain Maison Bechstein, you can see at the bottom there. Um, so most of the songs, or at least many of the songs that were performed back then, are things that haven't necessarily lasted through to the present day, but there were one or two exceptions. So first heard on 13th of June 1901, barely two <laughs> weeks after we opened, Theo Learhammer sang Ronaldo Hahn's Dune Prison, uh, and shortly afterwards, at a concert held by Violet Gordon Woodhouse, um, Yvonne de Saint-André sang Gabriel Faure's A Présent Rêve, and both of those songs have gone on to be performed decade on decade and still within the last couple of years here, so they're very much part of our past and our future. And I wasn't able to find a recording from that far back, but I did find we're going to hear a little bit of Après un rêve, sung by the Swiss baritone Charles Ponzera, who did appear here in the 1920s, and so I thought it was nice to kind of bring his voice back to life from the stage. In 1902, we also had a visit from the extraordinary chanteuse and diseurs Yvette Gilbert, who uh, came here in 1902 as a precursor to coming back in 1904 to do a series, a long concert series, that would become basically a, a, an annual or, or biennial thing for her. And she started to introduce the audiences to French folk songs and bergeret, that kind of precursor to the melody music that started to work its way after her visits into other people's song recitals, alongside Han and Faure, Duparc, and a little bit later, Debussy, Chanson, and Chabrier, among others. So those were our beginnings with French song, and I'd love to know about yours. <laughs> well, I went to study French. I did a French degree, and as a part of that, we were sent away. If we wanted to go, we could go to, for a year to France. And I went to Voiron, which is near Grenoble, up in the mountains, having seen the mountains at Annecy, I wanted to go back and see some more. <laughs> so so I, I tried to get as far away from, <coughs> far away from home as possible. <laughs> and I went to, uh, to Voiron, where I was all alone um, and had almost nothing to do. So I, I went and enrolled at the Conservatoire in Grenoble. 
which I think was quite brave of me, actually. It was, yeah. I was 20. I was spent my 21st, I had my 21st birthday over there. <coughs> but I found a most wonderful singing teacher. I'd always had singing lessons, but I didn't think of it as a possible anything to do later. But I found this lady, and <coughs> she said, if you worked a bit harder, maybe you could do singing, because I didn't know what I was going to do when I finished the degree. And she sent me to a music school in Nice, International Music Academy in Nice, in the summer of 1968, after I'd sung in the choir for the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympics in Grenoble. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a, a kind of magic time. I had a great time over there. And I encountered a lot of singers in this music school in Nice who, who were just as... I'm just like me, really. I thought everybody would be frightfully ambitious and, you know, clawing the others out of the way and climbing to the top of the pile. And we were just all people who loved music and singing and wanted to do it. And, and I heard there for the first time somebody sing Azie from Scheherazade by Ravel. And my teacher made me learn um, Debussy Le Jet d'eau, one of the Baudelaire settings by Debussy, which I loved. And this music, I'd never heard anything like this, although I did O-level music, and, and I, I decided I didn't much like Schubert's songs, actually. I didn't like... I didn't like them. <laughs> Sorry, I can like them now. But, <laughs> but this was, I don't know, this was a different world. With, with the, and the sound of the words, I loved the sound of the French words, and sort of a mouthful of wonderful... And the names, um, I mean, I had, a, I was quite fond of my, my pen friend's boyfriend who was co called Roger. Well, I mean, it's much, much sexier than Roger. <laughs> and, and I love, you know, Raoul. I, I just loved, I was a sucker for the, the sound of the words. And, and I loved, I, I was introduced to Serge Reggiani who was a famous film star and had, oh, he did these wonderful recordings. I played and played and played and played these recordings of Reggiani and Brel, La Chanson des Vieux Amants, which is one of my favorite songs ever. Um, so, um, but, but I quite, <laughs> I did like the Debussy as well. <laughs> and you said about hearing Azie for the first time. Yes. So it was Régine Crespa, wasn't it, that really brought you into Well, uh, yes, song. there was a, on this course with me, there was a lovely singer from um, Morocco, and she sang Azi, which, I mean, it's such a, I mean, it's a vast, wonderful, extraordinary song anyway, but she had a beautiful voice, and I thought this was amazing, this music. So I went and bought a recording of Régine Crespin singing uh, um, Scheherazade on the one side of the LP, as it was then, and on the other side, Les Nuits d'été, oh. which I hadn't heard before, and oh, my goodness. Such glorious, totally other music. I'd done a lot of Handel and Mozart, but nothing, Never heard anything nothing quite that like spoke that. to me like that and, was, and, and the beauty of the language with it. Yeah, mm. and so then singing as a, as a career seemed a possibility, so you went to the academy, and you, yes. so you told me, you were telling me about masterclasses. Oh, that's right, yes. Tell us about that. Yes, I, I, I did, I wasn't good at any of these things. I'm such a nervy person. Um, but I did one masterclass when I sang Azie from Scheherazade, and it was with Hugues Crénaud, wonderful Swiss tenor who lived to be about 108, I think. <laughs> we sang, in fact, I sang for his 100th birthday <laughs> uh, in Vevey. But 
I think he was, he was very, I can't remember anything that he said to me, but I know he was very impressed with my accompanist who managed to play it wonderfully. It's very difficult, as he, it was Simon Rattle, who <laughs> 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 was just arrived as a student at the academy. <laughs> and then I did, a, the only other one I ever, ever dared was with Graham Johnson, who I'd met when I was a student at the academy. I mean, how lucky was that? Um, and we did a class for Pierre Bernac, and I, I used to go everywhere on my moped. <laughs> Those days I had a pooch. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to, you know, wrap up warm against the elements. And so I arrived there late, as I was always late, for this class with Bernac and took off my helmet, my overcoat, another coat, another coat. And then he said, you know, Felicity Lott, come and sing. So I sang, um, not very well, Lamento of mm. Duparc. But in the same masterclass was Anthony Rolf Johnson, who sang Poulenc's Bleu, and it was absolutely glorious. And Bernac said, I have nothing to say. It was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got Regine Crespin um, singing the third song from Scheherazade oh. to listen to and hear um, La Différent. It is it's beautiful.
Thank you for playing it all. You're very welcome. <laughs> so <laughs> mum only asked for two things. So this is my mum, I should say. <laughs> only asked for two things, so I thought I'd play, play those things all the way through. <laughs> so in fact, Scheherazade's first performance here was a seriously exciting one. In 1909, a group had been founded uh, called the Société des Concerts Français, uh, with an aim to bring French music, both contemporary and, in, and historical, to British audiences and they would generally dedicate their concerts to one or two specific composers, and some of those composers came here. Um, and so it was that Ravel's first appearance in England was here on the 26th of April, 1909, in a concert shared with Florent Schmidt. So in addition to um, performances of Scheherazade and the Cinq Mélodies Populaires Grecques, Jeanne Bathory performed three of the Histoire Naturelle, um, which I think Ravel had dedicated to her. Mm. And the Times said, three delicious studies in natural history. Le Pain, we had him all from his strut to his cri diabolique. He was perfect. <laughs> Other composers who appeared at the hall under the auspices of this society included Albert Roussel, Ernest Moret, Frédéric Derlanger, uh, Georges Enesco, Manuel de Faya, um, and Ronaldo Hahn. Although the two appearances he made with the Société in 1909 weren't his first appearance at the hall, that had been in 1906, uh, where he had accompanied and sung in a program of his own songs. So he did a couple of songs on his own and a duet with the baritone Léon René. Um, this concert wasn't a resounding success. The review in the Times had this to say, as with so many, of the purveyors of the little French lyrics that regularly enjoy a season or two of fashion. <laughs> the songs do not gain very much by being sung continuously, with nothing else by way of relief. <laughs> <laughs> they produce the effect of a row of small impressionist landscapes, all of the same scheme of color, and nearly all treating the same sort of subjects in the same sort of way. <laughs> with all their charm and picturesqueness, there is no denying that a whole series of them produces the impression of a rather cloying and not quite wholesome kind of sweetness. <laughs> this plentiful lack of virility was not disguised in the interpretation of no fewer than 13 of the songs by Monsieur Léon René, a baritone whose singing brings out all the least manly qualities in the songs. <laughs> <laughs> now, I wasn't able in time to find a recording of a baritone singing the third <laughs> song from that concert, Fit Galante, uh, but we do have a tenor. Charming, absolutely <laughs> charming. Don't know what they were talking about. No. So mm. the Societe concerts were programmed as a mixture of chamber music, piano and song, probably mostly to avoid the kind of criticism that I just read out. Um, thinking about inventive programming leads one inevitably to think about Graham Johnson and Songmaker's Almanac. So mm. you met Graham, you said you'd, you'd met him at the Academy. Where did that take you? Where did the foundation of Songmakers take you next? Oh, well took me all over the world eventually, but uh, 
no, I met Graham when we were students, as, yes, as you say, at the Academy, and then he had the wonderful idea of starting this group called Songmakers to, I don't know, open the song recital to a wider audience, really, or to, or to give it a new kick. And as I said, we met Anthony Rolf Johnson, or we heard Anthony Rolf Johnson singing in that Bernack masterclass. And Anne Murray um, was recommended by Gerald Moore, who'd played for her, or adjudicated her, perhaps. And um, the baritone of the quartet was Richard Jackson, wonderful Richard, who love of languages and literature. And we had such a great time. We started off at the Purcell Room with a program about human vices, with, which was quite an unusual subject for a song recital, really. <laughs> <laughs> and then we came um, du during William Lyon's time. We were invited to come here. And Graham devised endless programs, so many different programs. And, and he's such a, you know, he's always interested in everything and curious about repertoire, and he went all over searching for unknown songs or that he could put together with well-known songs and devised amazing programmes on themes or sometimes in praise of a particular person. He did a, a concert for Ukraine and one for Bernac and one for Peter Piers, but, but also songs about poets, uh, Yes, recital. Uh, yes, a recital on the theme of of poets. And um, one of the other important people I'd met earlier on in my trajectory was uh, my professor at Royal Holloway College, who was a great world expert on Victor Hugo. He's called Jean Gaudin, and he died just last year. But he knew everything about Victor Hugo and wrote books and edited the poems and the letters. And he was an inspiring lecturer when we were students at Holloway. And when I started traveling about and singing a bit, I did a concert in Paris and he came to it. And so we, we got to know each other again on a different kind of footing rather than student pupil. And he said, why don't you suggest to your record company that you do a recording of Victor Hugo settings? And I said, well, I don't actually have a record company, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't remember how that happened, but, but uh, Jean came up with all these um, different settings, Wagner and Saint-Saëns and uh, Lalo and all sorts of people. So I learned all that repertoire. And we, we did bring out this disc, and after that we brought out a disc of Baudelaire settings. But, um, the <laughs> yes, Graham, with all the repertoire he used to bring out and say, learn this, you know, we were, we're doing this. This is the program for two or three weeks' time. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it was great, because I did have time, really, yeah. then, in the early years, and you, you learn all these things. But it was always, I was always the sort of passive partner, and Graham would say, you know, this is, learn this. And I, I didn't go looking myself, which I regret tremendously. I do it a bit more now, but not terribly much more now. It's <laughs> Francois Leroux who tells me what to get. <laughs> So this was about the same time you were starting to do French opera as well, wasn't it? You oh, said that's you'd right. done Louise. That's right, yes. Um, I, I just, yeah, it was round about 70, 76, mm -hmm. which was, I think, my first, or, no, my first Wigmore was perhaps 75, but 76 was the first Songmakers yeah. concerts. And, the, and around that time, I went to Glyndebourne tour for the first time. And Glyndebourne and... Um, was run by Brian Dickey in those days, and he, was, he knew very well the man who ran the theatre in Nancy, 
Jean-Albert Cartier, and they wanted somebody to sing Louise, and I think probably Brian suggested me, and I went to sing Louise, which I loved. I thought it was such a beautiful opera. I still do. It's hardly ever done, but um, wonderful part for Louise. Uh, the, f the only thing anybody knows from it really is Depuis le Jour, well-known aria from it, but it's got tremendous parts and, and wonderful exciting, dramatic music where Louise tries to break out, break away from her parents and live a life. So I did that and, and then I got to be a little bit known perhaps. In You'd stepped in for that recital oh, yes. at the Sad Playel, didn't you? Yes, that's right. I can't remember when that was, but I, yes. That it's was in the late 70s sometime, I think you said. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that was, <laughs> yes, that was with Geoffrey Parsons, who I knew because I had lessons with Eric Fatir who was a terrific singing teacher here, and, and his partner was Geoffrey Parsons, so I used to meet him on the stairs when I went up for my lessons with Eric. And he invited me, he was doing a recital in Paris with Edith Matisse, and she cancelled, and at a day's notice, he asked if I could go over and do it. And I did, and I did more or less the same programme that she was going to do, which was... Oof. <laughs> happened to us, thanks to Graham, I expect I had all that repertoire in my bag. <laughs> but uh, that got quite a bit of notice, actually, because it was in the Salle Playel and it was broadcast, I think. And then I went to, back to Nancy to do The Merry Widow, La Veuve Joyeuse, which mm. had a lot of dialogue, of course, in French, too. And, and, um, and the, then the lovely director of the Nancy Theatre went to take over the theatre in Paris at the Châtelet, and we did... La Veuve Joyeuse there to open the new theatre, uh -huh. which had just been revamped. And, and so I was, I was kind of in. I, I was in yeah. at the Châtelet anyway. It took me a bit longer to get into the opera. Yeah. <laughs> so the First World War saw the end of the Société and the temporary closure of the hall as well, and it was to reopen in January 1917 as Wigmore Hall. And French song was a little bit slow to return. There were one or two songs by popular composers like Hahn and Duparc, uh, amid a sea of new Russian repertoire that was becoming the, the really the in thing. But we had started at that time to do solo song recitals, which in the very early years had been a complete rarity. Mostly an entire evening of solo song was thought at the time to be a bit much. Um, you get reviews saying, oh, she should never have taken that on. No, no one, who could possibly sit through an entire evening of a song recital? But by the 19, like post-war, the early 1920s, there were so solo song recitals, and they'd settled into a sort of pattern, um, which was a little bit variable, but it basically went like this. You'd start off with Arie Antiche, so you could do anything as long as it was in Italian, um, and then you would do a block of either Russian song or German song, quite serious things. You'd do that, you'd have an interval, you'd come back, and then you would sing some French. You'd sing a block of French songs, usually one each by a set of composers, uh, and you would end with contemporary English song or folk songs. Um, and because this was such a reliable format at that time, it meant that there was a regular consistent place in vocal repertoire for a group of the most popular French composers, although there were some who were less frequently performed but who were there too. Um, we had pieces by Caplet and Louis Duret, Diodaza Severac was very popular at the time, and also Lily Boulanger, uh, whose beautiful song Au Pied de Mon Lit we're gonna hear a little bit of now. Fumisa, 
is wonderful and it's so 20s too it really puts you mm. in that in that time I think um, 1923 also saw the first Wigmore Hall performances of songs by Mio and also by Francis Poulenc and Poulenc I know became very important to you mm. how did that come about I think I probably heard well I probably heard the Poulenc first with uh, from Regine Caspin because mm. I, I was such a fan of her so I did buy other recordings and she was the first um, Madame Lidouane in the Dialogue des Carmelites, and then later became a famous first uh, prioress who dies. But uh, she she worked with Poulenc. She sang some of the songs. I I don't know. I just loved that sound world of Poulenc. I loved the fact that he was he could be very serious and very very emotional, very moving, and such a you know so funny and crazy and naughty. Um, I wish I'd met Poulenc. I was, I got, you know, I was quite, quite close. I almost could have done. I, I think I would have liked him. And we, Graham and I first did, I think we did a, con uh, maybe we did La Courte Pie, first of all, of Poulenc. And Graham, of course, in the, ooh, when we just left the academy, he devised a whole series for the radio, all the, all the Poulenc songs, 13 programmes, I think, on the radio. So I would, would have learned quite a few things then. And Felicity Palmer also record did some of those song cycles quite beautifully. They were terrific. But I, um, I went to study with, study, no, I went once to go through Tel Jour, Tel Nuit with Pierre Bernac. After we'd, we met him in that, that masterclass, that wasn't a huge success, but I did go and jump in for a concert that he was involved with in Paris later. And then we got on and he thought I was all right. I didn't have my moped anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he was wonderful to work with on that and obviously knew exactly all the dynamics and how Poulenc had moved things on and where to breathe and you know, could say all sorts of useful things. And we also made a film with Graham at Poulenc's house in Noisy for, um, oh gosh, which channel it was, I don't remember. It went out once, I think. But I slept in Poulenc's bed, and <laughs> I, I don't know, the, the, I love the chords, the harmonies, you always know after a, a couple of chords who has composed that, and people say, well, it's, you know, it's trivial music, it's not trivial music, and, and it's wonderful to know exactly who that is, and I love the, the chords at the beginnings of some of the songs, Hotel, for instance, these sort of, ooh, that you settle down into this amazing, plush, marshmallowy cloud <laughs> of, I, there's nobody that writes harmonies like that. And then the next thing will be something scatty and crazy. And I love the instrumental music as well. Mm -hmm. We did a, a, some performances in Spain of La Voix Men, And in the first part, they put on the play and they had a, a, a famous Spanish film star, Cecilia Roth, who'd been in the Almodovar films. 
and she did the play in the first half. And to link the play with the opera, and so that all her fans wouldn't be able to go home in the interval, <laughs> <laughs> they kept the music going. They played um, the flute, the slow movement of the flute sonata, which is so beautiful. And then the orchestra filed in quietly, and we did the, the opera in the second part. And I met Al Modavar, so that was quite exciting. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's not a lot to do with French song. But, but I must say, French music has, has taken me to unexpected places. Yeah. It's been so wonderful. I, I can't quite believe, especially when I hear the mistakes I make now, <laughs> that, uh, you know, that they put up with my... Because you got to know Poulenc's family, didn't you? Really? Yes, that's right. Graham stayed with uh, Rosine Serange in Paris, in the, in the flat in Paris, and then and she was living in that house in, in Noisey when we went and did the film. And she, she used to come to our concert. She was a lovely, lovely woman. And now we're in very much in touch with her grandson, uh, Benoit, who runs, uh, and I'm the, I am Madame la Présidente des Amis de Francis Poulenc in France, so I'm frightfully <laughs> grand. grand. <laughs> well, Poulenc will be along shortly uh, in our history of the hall because the Second World War saw another crucial French concert series come here, it was Felix Abrahamian and Tony Mayer's Con Concert de Musique Française, um, which, like the Société, although with a slightly more uh, immediate imperative, were combination vocal chamber and piano concerts intended to keep the music of French composers really vital to British audiences. And um, Poulenc would come later, because at the time, during the war, the artist couldn't travel freely around Europe, but the first concert was on the 25th of June, 1942, it was dedicated to Debussy, and it featured the great soprano Maggie Tate, who'd studied with Debussy, and who'd already given more than one concert here devoted to his works. In her first concert here um, to feature Debussy, her final song was Fantoche from Fête Galante, so I've got a recording of her doing that, uh, with Corto, who played the piano for her at more than one of her Debussy recitals here. lovely to bring these these voices back to the stage to be honest <laughs> it's really lovely for, for me as our archivist to be able to to play those recordings of people who really were here and think crikey mm. they were <laughs> you know right behind me it's wonderful <laughs> and with so Gerald Moore she on that post absolutely yeah Moore, mm. so like you she was an English singer who became known for her interpretation of French music 
Um, what does it take to really get inside a language other than your own? What, how do you do it? Well, I have to love it for a start, I think, yeah. and, and find it fascinating. And I just wanted, I wanted people not to know that I was from England when I was there. You know, that was my, the biggest compliment. You know, you could be talking to somebody for, say, 10, 15 minutes. This is when I'd spent a year there. I'd really had got going. I mean, it's awfully sad how quickly it disappears and you have to work at it again. But, but after the end of my year in France, way, way, way back, then I could maybe sustain it for about 15 minutes, and then somebody would say, are you French? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boo. <laughs> but uh, no, that's the main thing. And, and, and having a good ear, obviously, you must have a, have a good ear. I'm, I'm not a very good mimic, but I, I can a bit. And uh, it took me much, much longer to love German than it yeah. did. French was just, I don't know, it's, it's champagne and, and lightness and sexiness and I mean all the things that I mean I was a really gawky un, um, unconfident uh, teenager person and um, I don't know it just it seemed like a whole other world that somebody might might open a door to you know I don't know it was lovely so how do you how do you approach a song that's new to you that's in another language, or that's in French specifically? In French, I'd, I would yeah. read the poem. You go for yes, the, absolutely, the, poem the first. words, yes. And, and also to see if I can identify with it in some way, mm. with, or, or with the role indeed. Because there's all sorts of things I think, well, I couldn't be saying that. Partly, another thing about being so tall, I mean, I had umpty, umpty five complexes about things like that. So um, I would look for a, a, a sentiment that I could think I could you know, express truthfully, I suppose. I loved some of Hugo's poems, I suppose because of Gordon and, and you know, introducing me to these things at, a, at university. I hadn't read an awful lot of French by then. He wrote one poem, I'm a very emotional person too, so it's obviously things, emotional things get me uh, rather than particularly clever or things that, that speak to me um, from the sensitive <laughs> side. And he wrote, he had such a tragic life, an amazing life, Hugo, but with his tragedies with his children and, and his, his beloved daughter who was, who was drowned on her honeymoon. Oh. There was a poem he wrote called Avilquier, and that I went to the grave, the, the tombs there in Vilquier, not far from the channel. But the poem he wrote on that is, I don't know, it's just it's so, so beautiful and so simple, because he wrote obviously huge tomes yeah. and I buy them and I think, oh, I can't go through all that. You know. <laughs> <coughs> but, uh, but I do love the, the sound. And I was talking about the Reggiani. Mm. Um, it, it's the, always the sound of the language and the voice. He, there's a wonderful recording of him, La femme qui est dans mon lit n'a plus 20 ans depuis longtemps. And at the beginning of it, he's, he recites a poem by Baudelaire, and this voice, I, I just, the, the, the speaking voice is such a powerful, powerful, evocative thing, and uh, we've lost that a bit. We, uh, this is nothing to do with French, but in, in <laughs> you know, people like Richard Burton or people with, who really relish the sound, I don't know, we're, we're, we've lost all that a bit, I think, and, yeah. and poetry 
Yeah. yeah. Expressing poetry. Anyway, all that was, is partly to do with how I would approach yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and And then, of course, whether I could actually sing it. Yes, <coughs> whether, whether it was uh, in, in a range that I could manage, which ruled out quite a lot of the Debussy things, which went up to places I didn't feel happy in. Mm. I thought I was a mezzo. I, when I was a student, I did uh, Dora Bella and... Uh, and I, I sang Octavian uh, about 40 times at Glyndebourne before mm. I got out of that sort of range. Anyway, sorry. Oh, no. Difficult no. to keep me on track. No. You should know that. <laughs> <laughs> so subsequent concerts featured songs by Ravel, Chabrier, Bizet, Fauré, Onega, Roussel, mm. Dandy, and Chausson. Uh, and there were also three concerts dedicated to Les Six. Um, and one of which was dedicated to Lacey's in <coughs> 1942, <coughs> in which Sophie Viss sang works by Auric and Poulenc and Mio. I've got the uh, up there, you can see Taifer up there with a, an instrumental piece and Mio songs and Poulenc songs. Um, and also in uh, 1943, during these concerts, Peter Pears gave what was probably the first Wigmore Hall performance of Tel Jour, Tel Nuit. Mm -hmm. uh, and in 1944, some songs by Messiaen became his first known works at all to be performed here. Um, but the songs are still pretty much a, a rarity in programming, so I thought it might be good to hear a little bit of one of those songs now that was played in that concert, Le Sourire. Following the liberation of Paris, Poulenc was able to come to London, and on the 7th of January 1945, he gave a performance with the Concert in which he accompanied Pierre Bernac, who was also making his Wigmore Hall debut in a programme of songs by Duparc, Faure, Debussy, and of course Poulenc himself. Tel jour, tel nuit, Métamorphose and Deux poèmes de Louise Aragon uh, were followed by a repeat of Say and also à sa guitare and a chanson villageoise as encores. Uh, and here he is singing A Toute Bride, the fifth and the shortest song from Tel Jour, Tel Nuit. A toute bride, toi dont le fantôme fiaffe la nuit sur un violon, viens régner dans les bois. Les berges de l'ouragan cherchent leur chemin par chez toi. Tu n'es pas de celle dont on invente les plaisirs. 
Gérard Souzé also took part in the concerts, and between them, Souzé and Bernac, the latter accompanied several times by Poulenc, really dominated French song here during the late 1940s and 50s, and in fact, in Souzé's case, all the way through until the 1980s. Uh, Darius Mio, as well, uh, came here with the concert, not to perform any of his own works, but to give a lecture with musical illustration on the genius of Satie as a composer. Um, I can't imagine how exciting it must be to work with a composer on their pieces and to be the person giving those those first performances. Mm. But I know you've done it, so tell well, me about that. Not so very much. Once with a, a, a lovely French composer who is around now, Régis Campo, who, who did a, a set of settings of La Bestiaire. Le Bestiaire. Here we go. Le Bestiaire. <laughs> um, that we, we performed with orchestra in Paris. And uh, he'd done a happy birthday tribute for one of the orchestras that was celebrating in Paris that was celebrating its birthday and uh, it was birthday but the the songs he wrote the the bestiaire poems that were that was lovely and i didn't really have anything to contribute he just he knew my voice a bit so he set it in a range that mm -hmm. he thought would probably be all right and uh, and it was more or less so that was fun um but I think it would have been extraordinary to have, you know, to had a relationship with a composer or a, a musical relationship with a composer. It would have been so wonderful and have, have things written for you or be able to say, you know, it would be, be great if you could, you know, lower that a little bit or, or <laughs> that doesn't quite sit easily. It must have been extraordinary to work with Poulenc. And yeah. he was such, uh, what well, generous. I mean, obviously the, the works that he, he wrote with Bernac in mind I love Bernac's performances. It's not the most beautiful, round, wonderful voice, but the sounds he gets and the care for the text is quite, quite extraordinary, I think. And then, of course, Poulenc had um, his other great muse was Denise Duval, for whom he wrote La Voix Humaine, and he wrote his last ever cycle of songs for her, La Courte Paille, which she never sang. It's so sad, she didn't like them. I think she wanted something more dramatic. Mm. She, she liked being on stage doing a, an opera performance where she could forget about uh, who she is. You know, th that's one of the great things about being in an opera, which makes it so much easier in a way than a song recital, because it's not you. <laughs> you're somebody else, you're p portraying somebody else. And you've got all this backup, the orchestra and the director who's telling you how to do everything and the lighting and the costumes. And but to actually stand and deliver on a stage it's quite daunting, and I think if you don't have the luck that I had to, to you know, to meet somebody like Graham and, and, and be performing all the time and be given the opportunities to, to give recitals all the time, that's so important, because otherwise it becomes a huge hurdle and you're like a rabbit in the headlights. Some Sometimes we were talking about some of the other people that you had worked with, because Armin Jardin, and you did a lot of French music with yes, him. Yes, and yeah. not only, and I did a lot of concerts not only with with Graham, also with Malcolm and with Roger Vigneault, who's a wonderful yeah. pianist for French music. But um, I worked, yes, a lot with a conductor who um, was in charge of La, La Suisse Romande, the orchestra of La Suisse Romande in Geneva, Armin Jordan, whose son Philippe Jordan is leading all the great opera houses of the world now, but Armin was a hoot, he was so funny. And 
he became a friend, <clears throat> really. And we recorded the chanson poème de l'amour et de la mer, which I loved. It's such exotic music, and the last section of that, um, Le Temps des Lilas, is one of, one of Chausson's most beautiful songs anyway. But, uh, but Armin, and he got the most extraordinary sound out of his orchestra. They all loved him. He was terribly non-PC and, and drank and smoked himself to death, actually. But he was, his orchestra just loved him, and they had a very special sound. And Armin loved French music and wanted to you know, show it showcase it to the world, as, as does, um, did uh, Michel Plasson. I worked with him a lot. We did the Dialogue des Carmelites at the Opera House, actually, directed by Plasson. And, yes, I'm, I sang with Régine Crespin. I don't know if I said that before. No. My goodness, I must have been the most dreadful company. I was so in awe of this woman, because she'd been up there, you know, my absolute idol for ages. And then we sang, to, we first recorded it in, in a radio concert in Paris in 1980. And she wasn't supposed to be singing, though, the first prioress who dies. It was supposed to be an Italian, very grand, distinguished Italian singer who came and her French was appalling. And they <laughs> said, we can't have this. So they got, <laughs> asked her to go home and they managed to get Régine. And, oh my goodness, I mean, I was all over the place with excitement and nerves with singing with her. And then we all went for a meal after the second performance, and she and I were the only two smokers in the entire place. <laughs> all the cars. Those were the days. I gave it up. <laughs> but, uh, but then we did it at Covent Garden, and also with her. And Margarita Valman, who directed the first performances at La Scala, with, when Poulenc obviously was there, and with Denise Duval, and um, I can't remember who else did, played all the parts, but Mar Margarita Valman, she was terrifying. We had a super cast of lovely Brit singers. Um, uh, oh, whose names, of course, go straight out of my head. Pauline Tinsley, um, for goodness sake. Anyway, anyway. lots of... <laughs> Lillian Watson was Sir yeah. Constance, and oh dear. They've all gone, sorry. But, but Margarita Valman, she was terrifying. Pauline Tinsley was jolly fierce lady. Mm -hmm. And she had us all in tears, Margarita <laughs> Valman. She'd come and sit on the stage, just right down in front of us while we were rehearsing, and she'd go, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew how we were going to render that for the podcast. I wish <laughs> <laughs> an artist's impression of you doing that's amazing. <laughs> oh, she was awful. Oh, dear, dear. Anyway. Well, we're coming to the point in Wigmore Hall's history where, where you uh, become very much a part of the story. You made your recital debut, there it is, here. Oh, look. In 1975. <laughs> um, and you started as you meant to go on. You did uh, Debussy's Le Jet d'eau that you talked about earlier, and Recueillement and Duparc's La Vie Intérieure. Um, and I think it's kind of lovely to bring it full circle and have Régine Crespin out there. You were astonished to discover she actually made her Wigmore Hall debut in 1979, Yay. so four years after you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so among other things, she sang three songs by Faure and three by Sati, whose songs had been almost entirely neglected until suddenly in the mid-70s, um, they got a sort of boost from somewhere. I don't know why exactly, but suddenly <laughs> they were much more yes. popular. So mm. right, lovely to have those both. Um, and a little bit earlier that year in 1979, Ellie Ameling had ended her season opening concert with Sati's La Diva de l'Empire. Um, and that concert had made Wigmore Hall history 
because it was the first concert in the first ever artistic series that we held here, which was basically a new idea across the board, not just here, but in all the other concert halls too. And it was um, William Lyon devised this artistic series that ran through half of the 1979-1980 season. Um, and it covered all the chamber works and many of the piano works and songs of Forêt. It started with a talk on his chamber music and it ended with uh, a concert by songmakers, although not one that you were involved in, I think, um, I think so. that told the story of Forêt's life through his songs. And so to have that was a really new thing that, that we were doing. We're coming to some Forêt in a while. Um, so instead, I thought we'd hear a bit of Elie Amling's completely charming recording of La Diva de l'Empire, with which she ended that season opening concert. <laughs> Quite heavily involved in that Forêt series are also the Nash Ensemble, um, which meant that in addition to the kind of separate song and chamber and piano concerts that had become the norm in the late 60s and the 70s, we actually ended up having a return to that format of mixed chamber and song that had worked so well for both big société that we'd had here before. Um, and so it was concerts that mixed song and chamber together, which they obviously became known for and, and already had been becoming known for, but it was part of their, their journey here with us too to be involved in that first artistic series. So there were things like um, they would play a forêt quartet and Phyllis Brynjolson would sing some forêt songs or Henry Herford sang some songs by Debussy and Capley for some sort of added color and context, but then they would play a piece of forêt. Um, and uh, I said that there'd been a concert at the end of that which was dedicated to Farley's life, which you weren't, weren't there for. But mm. the next year, uh, Songmakers did come back with you to do a whole evening of Dupac. And I don't have the program for that. I have instead oh. a picture <laughs> from around that time <laughs> of you and Graham, because I thought that was a nice thing to have <laughs> up. Um, so yeah. tell, me, tell me about being here. Tell me about French song here and just singing here. Oh, well, any song here is so lovely. It's the most extraordinary acoustic in this this room, it's beautiful. It's, I suppose, partly because of this curve, but it sends the sound out. I know the young singers that we're working with now, when they come and sing on this stage for the first time, they start and they go, oh, because <laughs> 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 so, it, it helps. It's wonderful to have a, a room that helps. I mean, th there's all the history of the place. You go into the, the room backstage with the green room and you see all the photographs around the wall. So it's, it's just, it's alive. It's, a, it's like a person. And it's a, f it's a kind, benign person. I think some halls you go to and they're cold and, they're, and you, s you feel a kind of aggression. But here, 
why? I mean, it's just because it's, it's full of such wonderful musical happy memories for so many people. I think, I think the walls are full of them and they help. Yeah. Do you feel that presence of, you know, knowing that Poulenc was here and knowing that Ravel was here and all of that? Sort of feel it's, it's amazing. Yes, I hadn't <laughs> thought of that until you found all these things. Yeah. It's really, that is, I, I mean, I remember going to Vienna for the first time, seeing the four last songs in the Musikverein and thinking, oh my goodness, and that was, that was terrifying. Mm. <laughs> because you think, well, everybody, everybody's sung that piece here and they all <laughs> know it better than I do. And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but here, I mean, you see these lovely faces <laughs> and, and very often the, the same ones come, they come back for another go, which is great. <laughs> but, but yes, I mean, everybody loves this hall. They, you see the the things that people write, you know, all the distinguished people, to the wonderful Wigmore Hall, to our beloved Wigmore Hall. Everybody feels cherished here. And it's, I mean, William Lyne was wonderful, and, and John Gilhooley has, has carried on and taking it, taken the place to wonderful, greater heights with so many, so many different and new schemes, and that the hall does so much more than it ever did, doesn't mm -hmm. it? It's quite extraordinary. And I, I think it's... I, well, I'm, I do love it. Yes, I do love it. There's lots of concerts here during, yes. the, during the 80s. And then in 1990, I think you said that you got um, created Chevalier in, in France. So. Chevalier des Arts et des Lettres. Yes. yes. Mm. Yeah. I think I was doing something on stage there because I think my another wonderful influence um, on, on my life who's just departed this this life uh, was John Streets at the Royal Academy of Music who um, loved French opera. He, he put on Penelope Forêt and uh, Les Mamelles de Tiresias mm. and um, various other things we did at the Academy. But why am I talking about him? Because, because of the Chevalier. He was there, that's right. He, um, <laughs> they presented it to me on stage and he happened to be there, which was rather lovely. But uh, no, they've been so good to me, the French. I don't know, I can't understand it. I don't know why, um, but they gave me nice awards and, things <laughs> and made me a, a doctor at the Sorbonne. That was also through Jean Gaudon and people he knew. Um, he, he was my professor at Royal Holloway. And his he had a, a student, I think, who'd also been to Royal Holloway, who was then a professor at the Sorbonne. And he said, we have to get you a doctorate there, which, <laughs> I mean, and so they did. <laughs> I didn't pay, honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were talking about earlier, because I have obviously <laughs> Been, been around for some of this myself. And um, I will say France is the only place that I have seen you get recognized at a meat market. We were, <laughs> we were just shopping for lamb and suddenly somebody came up and said, oh, Felicity! <laughs> that has not happened in England, I don't think. No, no, no. It's amazing. It's, yeah, it happens sometimes when I'm on the bus, you know, and haven't, haven't done my hair or anything. I'll be, I love going on the bus in Paris because it makes me feel I'm a student again. And, I, you know, you feel young. It's great. <laughs> Mind you, it's not so good at the moment because they're on strike all the time. But, <laughs> but sometimes people have said, oh, Mr. Felicity Lot, dans le bus! <laughs> <laughs> I remember, oh, I was doing Cosi Fantuti in Paris and we stayed right at the southern end of Paris and I used to get the bus in to go and do uh, Fior de Ligi at the Opera Comique. <laughs> and I, was, I had the flu and I was standing there with my mother at the bus stop waiting for this thing in the pouring rain or something <laughs> with the flu. She said, Kiri wouldn't do this. <laughs> <laughs> 
though she probably would have. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in 1993, there was the Poulenc anniversary. Oh, yes. You said you did a concert. That's right, with Graham. We did a whole Poulenc programme at the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées, which is a wonderful place. And I, I, um, I used to do quite a lot of television, actually, in Paris. Um, so I got quite nice dresses because it, the, the television studios were in the Avenue Montaigne, where all the big fashion houses are. And two doors down was Givenchy. <coughs> and um, I got quite friendly with the lady who worked in Givenchy, and she'd let me go and have sale price things. And, and she sometimes let me have the shoes that the models had worn for the catwalk. And they all had big feet, not quite as big as mine, but I got in there somehow. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, I, I, yes, I ordered a dress from Givenchy that they actually made for me for that concert in really? Paris. Cost an arm and a leg, several legs. <laughs> <laughs> but I felt quite grand. And I'd just done a, an interview for one of the French magazines. And they put my f face on the front and it said, Moi, diva, because of course I said, I said I wouldn't, of course I'm not anything like that. And, and then we did this Poulenc programme. I should talk about the Poulenc programme, really, than the silly anecdotes. You, like. you can talk about whatever you like. It was quite hard to do a whole Poulenc programme, but anyway, it, was, it went okay. And we I was given so many flowers, and I had a, one fan who used to send the most extraordinary bouquets and practically trees. And, so <laughs> and we went down for a for a meal at the uh, Chez Francis at the end of the Avenue Montaigne after this concert and all of us weighed down <laughs> with these flowers and, and the man who put on the concert said, oh, moi, diva. <laughs> 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 but I mean, it's, it's, it's just not like England. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, yes, it has oh. been fun. Yes. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but yeah, to do a whole Poulenc programme was quite a challenge. We, d we did a, a chronological programme and then we recorded it mm -hmm. also. And I think we did it here too. There was certainly, there was yes, an all Poulenc programme. Yes, yeah. we, did, we did an all Poulenc and we did an all Strauss, but uh, yeah. yeah. So not least because you were such a, such a fundamental part of it, that, that, that late 80s, 90s and into the millennium period was a fantastic time here uh, for song recycles involving French song. There were interpreters of the genre who were amazing, who were coming from all around the world, um, including concerts by Maddie Mesplay and uh, Francois Leroux, whose debut is up there, uh, <laughs> and uh, Dawn Upshaw, Sarah Walker, and Victoria de Los Angeles, um, and a really exciting early performances by young singers at the time, like Christopher Maltman and Roderick Williams and uh, Sarah Connolly. One of Victoria de Los Angeles's programs in 1990 was devoted entirely to French song, um, and it opened with Forêt's Claire de Lune,
Yes, I should have said that. That was her, her singing yes, that. Lovely, so. lovely. Yes. Um, and the diversity of the repertoire in these concerts shows that at no point did the melody settle here into a kind of worn collection of the same 10 or 15 songs. We had songs by Taifer and Delib and Soge, de Severac was back again, um, more songs by Lily Boulanger and Joseph Cosma all represented among many others. So obviously back here again and again is one of the answers to this question, but where did the new millennium take you? Well, it took me onto a slightly different path, I think, of operetta. Is that what you're thinking of? Oh, yes. I mean, the, the Légion d'honneur as well. Oh. We must talk about that as well. Sorry. <laughs> that, that little thing. <laughs> but, uh, but certainly also the different path of... Yes, I, I, yeah. I mean, I don't know how that happened, but I got a Légion d'honneur, <laughs> which is extraordinary. And um, the ambassador here um, put on, let me have a, a big party at the embassy um, here for 100 people, I mean, extraordinary. So I could invite people who'd been important um, in my French journey and loads of friends, it was great. Mm. And that was, oh, well, it was amazing. But uh, where did it take me, the new millennium, Emily? <laughs> <laughs> help, help. Um, <coughs> just to sort to of, to talk about Belle Hélène a little oh bit. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. Because, um, <laughs> yes, I mean, we used to do, and I used to love, that song, uh, Claire de Lune, is one of my favourite songs ever of, of Foray. I think it's so beautiful. It's so, it's so poised, you know, so still. And um, I, I love Foray for that. It's not, it's kind of not expressive in your face. It's just, just there and you just describe the scene. It's, it's beautiful. And, and his changes of harmony are, are lovely. I love Duparc. Didn't write so many songs, but the... But the the poetry, it's always the poetry that's so important as well. I, I, don't like, I don't like words that I don't feel I can identify with. So anyway, we used to do serious song recitals, but it became more fun to end with something slightly saucier, naughtier, a bit of Offenbach, a bit of Messager, a bit of Maurice Yvain, uh, Ronaldo Hahn, who also wrote operettas as well as his wonderful songs. and. We, Graham and I did a programme at the uh, Théâtre de l'Athénée in Pierre Berger's series there, where we did homage to Yves, Yvonne Printemps. And we thought it was a bit too much to do a whole light programme, because I'd never done anything like that. I was you know, still shy and didn't know how to do it. So we did the first half was songs all, all about spring, and the second half was songs that Yvonne Printemps used to sing. She was a big star here too, but in the 30s, 40s. So that was the, um, they were the, that was the way I got into doing lighter things. And I did a recital in Lyon where we ended with Offenbach. This is another th connection with Régine Crespin because she, of course, used to sing all the lighter stuff as well as the grand operas and uh, she was a wonderful marshalin and, and had that warmth and excellent diction and, and she loved Offenbach and the, and the lighter, silly stuff too. And, and she got severely chastised for it. You know, how can you do this? It's not, you know, it's, it's inferior music. But it's, why? Why is it inferior music? Some of the music's great. Anyway, so the, um, I, I was asked to do La Belle Hélène of Offenbach. And I'd never done anything like that. I'd been the Merry Widow, but it's not quite the same as La Belle Hélène. <laughs> and I saw a production from Salzburg that I thought was 
awful after I'd said I'd do it. And it was <laughs> kind of vulgar. And I thought, oh dear, oh dear, what have I said? You know, I can't do this. And then I met Laurent Pelly, who was directing it. And it was with Mark Minkowski and wonderful colleagues like Francois Leroux, who were in it. And oh, I just had the best time of my life doing this. <laughs> you really did. I yes. really did. And uh, I mean, it finished my opera career totally, because I, <laughs> I kept saying, oh, I love this. I'm having such fun. You know, nobody ever asked me to do an opera again, which was a bit sad, but never mind. Grand Duchesse? Well, a Grand Duchesse is. Yeah, I did another, yeah. another operetta in France. It just, it was amazing, the uh, La Belle Hélène. It was such an iconic sort of production that beca we, we became a big hit. It was like having a hit in the West End or something. Yet they had to turn people away from the theatre hmm. because they, we, they couldn't all get in. But it was such a brilliant production by Laurent and Mark Minkowski, who was, who was slightly crazy with the orchestra. They really had to follow. It was with his orchestra, Les Musiciens du Louvre. And uh, he would whip up the speed. So it was so exciting. And we did it here at the English National Opera uh, later, and it, it sort of doesn't translate really. And it wasn't Mark Minkowski, and <laughs> it was. Uh, and it, uh, I I thought I had possibly a bit of a bit of um, exotic appeal as an English woman doing this part in France, mm. but as an English woman doing it in an English <laughs> translation in in London, I thought I didn't have much. Appeal, <laughs> really. <laughs> so I wrote to Maggie Smith, who I'd met vaguely in New York um, when I was doing Rosen Cavalier there, and I asked her if she'd go through the dialogue with me. I didn't know that. <laughs> didn't you know that? No. She came. Not she came to our house. <laughs> and she solemnly, well, not very solemnly, went through this. She's like, I don't know how I can help you, but I'll read it through. And she read it through, and I got s one or two of her wonderful inflections. And I didn't know what to give her. I think I gave her a bunch of gladiola. <laughs> 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 This, this, that sort of that opening up into lighter stuff is that what led you into more of a that and, and Yvonne Pantone led you into a slightly more like cabaret -y end yes. you've ended up yes. doing some things like that because Laurent directed some recitals for you didn't yes, he? Yes that was oh, I had such fun with that too although it was jolly hard work 80 minutes yeah I mean it, a song recital is quite tiring on the voice and we did um, staged by Laurent Pelly we did a, a show with costume and lighting and a wonderful dancer who had been in the uh, Belle Hélène Grand Duchesse, he was one of the team, and we did staged recitals, and it was 80 minutes without a break, and lots of different styles, and I had to dance a bit. <laughs> oh, we, d we did it in Brussels, in the theatre there, and in Lille, and I can't remember, we might have done a, a bit of it at the um, French Institute here, actually, but... But that was, no, I mean, all, all these exciting things that I, I don't know how to do in English. I, the Noel Coward, a bit. Mm -hmm. But the French, there's so much stuff from that uh, the earlier part of the, the 20th century. The um, Messager, I love Messager, who was a, a great friend of Forêt. He conducted the premiere of Pelias and Melisande. He introduced Parsifal to, to France. Um, he was a, a terrific musician and um, also had quite a long affair with Mary Garden, who was another of our, another British singer who went on to have much more success in France than here, probably. But his, his music is light and it's elegant. It's the elegance of it, the lightness and the elegance and the, the understated. 
ness of it. Because you said you, you, when you're doing a song recital, you feel very exposed, unlike doing an opera, because you can yeah. put on a character. But a lot of those songs do involve sort of putting yes, on a character a little right. bit. Yes, that's right. Sort of a safer place in some ways, or is it a more risky place? Do you think? No, I think it's a safer place. Mm -hmm. Yes, because you really have to play. Other, you can't just stand and sing these things. You yeah. have to, yeah. I mean, you, it's difficult to stand and sing anything, really. <laughs> you, you have to invest at least your personality somehow in everything. But um, no, I just, I, I would feel that I'd walked on, on eggshells all the way through the concert. And then at the end, you know, I could just <laughs> relax and sing this music that, that just, well, I suppose it's more like the music I kind of grew up with, you know, the, the, the musicals when you're not pr trying to prove that you can actually do it anymore. <laughs> or hope that you can actually do it. <laughs> so we've, we've, we've wound up sort of back at the present day here because we've had recently, um, in the last couple of years, concerts that explored Ravel's connections with, the, with his Basque heritage and with his sort of love affair with Orientalism and kind of recontextualizing that sort of thing. Um, and we also held the first ever Wigmore Hall concert dedicated to the songs of Henri Dutilleux, um, which included this song, Pour une amie perdue. Got a little bit of that here just to hear some Dutilleux. We've got lots of performers now who are still uh, part of the current generation of people who are getting excited about the possibilities of French songs. So with Stéphane Degout and Véronique Jeans and Eilish Treinen, Clara Maurice and, and Fatma Saïd, who've all done really exciting French concerts in the last couple of years, or concerts that involve French music, but looked at them as part of all sorts of different things. Um, and as we've seen today, really this and tonight's concert are just the latest sort of the latest page in a book that goes back all the way to the beginning of mm. um, our, our history here. And it's always been a hall for French song. And that's one of the great things about my job is getting to look through all of that and to see, you know, when I, when I was asked to, to do this, I thought, I know one or two things. I know these one or two big things, but what if in between those things, it suddenly disappears? What if I've got a a void of 20 years where nobody did anything. But in fact, it's always been very much alive here and always been very mm. contemporary as well. It's always been very much mm. um, the composers who were alive at the time, who felt that this was a place where they wanted their music to be heard. And I think that's still the case mm. now, which is very exciting. We've always got new commissions and that sort of thing going on. So that's where we are. And uh, I've got one more, one more slide here. Just from your concert oh here gosh. in 2013. 
Um, <laughs> is there anything else? Is there anything yes, else to say? I, yes. I, I mean, I think the acoustic here is particularly suitable for French song, really, because it's so suspended that, you know, you need to be able to float things out. And this, if you've got a dry acoustic, they just fall straight down your feet, whereas you can spin a line here. You need it with everything, of course, but particularly French, I think. And so, so that's... And it's a brilliant size, isn't it? I mean, it's intimate music. It's not, it's not showy, not, some of it is not, not really. It's intimate, you want to draw people in, and you can in this kind of hall. Um, it's, it's lovely that um, it's Marianne Klebasa tonight yeah. is singing Scheherazade, so it's so lovely uh -huh. that we should do this today. Which I mean, that was such a turning point for me, personally. And now um, we have this wonderful initiative, thank you to John Gilhooley, um, that we've started um, the Wigmore Hall French Song Exchange uh, with François Leroux, and we're working with eight, we have nine singers this year, <coughs> but um, eight wonderful singers who will study in depth um, over the course of the year some probably lesser known French songs. In fact, François has sent an amazing list of repertoire. I hadn't even heard of some of the composers, let alone <laughs> <laughs> the songs. So, so I should be working really hard to try and get one step ahead, but I'll be running along, I think. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I just, I hope, I hope I can convey the, the, the love I've had. And the, it sounds a bit as though, you know, this has brought me this accolade or the other. I don't mean that at all. I mean, I would never have, I never did anything think, wondering where it might take me. I just thought, oh, I love this. I'll have a go at this. I think that's, that's been my whole, my whole life. I, I've never, never had an idea of where I wanted to be when, but just, oh, how lovely. How wonderful to be able to spend time doing this. So lucky. And I felt that when we were, did, the, did the revival of Belle Hélène, and I was, I was just thinking, golly, you know, I, I'm having the time of my life. I get paid. and. And then I, I was in the, I was, I had to play drunk in the last scene, and I got my foot caught round the chair like this, and I couldn't get it out, and I ended up with such a twisted ankle. I thought, well, I should stop saying how lucky I am. <laughs> I nearly had to cancel the whole run. <laughs> I had to get a doctor in every night to strap me up. <laughs> but uh, oh no, thank you, thank you, Wigmore, thank you, French song, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you for coming. And you only asked for two pieces of music to be included yeah. in all of this. And you asked for Régine Crespin, and you wanted a recording of you singing uh, Les Chemins de l'Amour. Or an extract, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I thought we should probably hear the whole thing, because oh. um, you so often did it as an encore here. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so it seemed only, only fitting to end this with a recording of that. Mm. 